EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. that the future of Europe that is currently emerging is one in which the question of how far integration will really go is first and foremost in most people's minds. We're in a time of multiple crises, and the question is whether, whether and how the EU will overcome all of these crises, and whether it will spell a new sort of concrete model of of the path forward or whether it will kind of return to business as usual. So I think, um, you know, the EU is, is basically defined in terms of integration as either a sort of gradual process of achieving more and more integration in multiple areas or a more significant break with the past when you have a crisis in which the EU sort of advances more dramatically in terms of integration. Um, so both of these processes have been crucial. And I think that if I were to hazard a guess, most likely after the current phase of crisis, the EU will find some kind of solution, for example, to the, the refugee and migration crisis, and then will continue on a more gradual path toward more integration. I don't think that necessarily the EU is going to become fully federal. I think it's quasi-federal right now. And I think it, it will continue on and find some sort of balance between a kind of intergovernmental and supranational approach, but clearly with, with more of the supranational component coming in over time. I think there are multiple challenges right now that the EU is facing. There's Russian aggression to the east. There's the question of whether Britain will stay in the European Union. There's ongoing effects of the Eurozone crisis. And then there is the migration refugee flow that has increased so dramatically. So of all of those crises, I think the only one that potentially poses an existential problem for the EU is the migration and refugee crisis. Um, I can explain later if you want sort of how I would assess the other ones, but I would focus mostly on the migration and refugee problem. And I would say, you know, it isn't, it isn't a crisis in terms of whether the EU can actually logistically handle it. Um, the EU is made up of over half a billion people, and we're talking about 0. 0.1 to 0.2% of the population when, when we look at just those who are seeking asylum. The EU is the biggest economy, it's the richest economy, and there is generally majority political will to um, abide by international law and provide refugees with um, a place of asylum. So logistically, it isn't really 
necessarily a crisis, although there is this, of course, there's this period of muddling through. Where the crisis really is, is the political crisis in reaction to the refugees that we see um, really visibly throughout the EU in terms of the rise of far-right parties, this backlash against having refugees and migrants come into the EU in such large numbers. Um, so in somewhere close to a dozen member states, there is a rise in far-right parties, at least in terms of their popularity and the portion of the vote that they're getting. Uh, this bodes very poorly for the overall EU goal, the sort of purpose of why we we have EU integration in the first place, because it's essentially going backwards. It's, it's essentially why the EU was created, to overcome these kind of nationalist, um, far-right sentiments that that lead to closing off of, of cosmopolitanism and closing off of enlighten, enlightenment and so on. Uh, so I think the solution to this crisis ultimately lies in trying to find more moderate voices and to move away from the far-right backlash. And that may involve a number of things. I think it would be helpful to have more of a debate throughout Europe about why it is that it's, it is right to bring in refugees and asylum seekers, and also a kind of internal public diplomacy campaign that explains to regular citizens that ultimately bringing in these refugees and asylum seekers is a positive development for the EU. Demographically, the EU needs more people to come in, younger people of working age, and if if migrants don't come in, the EU is going to face a crisis in a few years involving not enough people who are contributing to welfare systems and so on. Um, so from both from a kind of um, moral standpoint and from an economic standpoint, it is clearly beneficial to have these migrants come in. And the key is to to explain and placate these more extremist forces that are kind of rising in popularity because it really flies in the face of what European progress has been since World War II. I think that it would be great to have more citizen participation in EU decision making. I don't necessarily think that it's the fault of the EU. The European Parliament has become progressively open. The Lisbon Treaty has provided more avenues for people to participate. Um, there is, there's a lot of effort and money devoted to explaining Europe to its citizens, actually far more spent on that than explaining Europe to the world. Um, so there is clearly a knowledge deficit, but I don't necessarily see a democratic deficit. I think um, you know, it's always good to debate whether governance processes are maximizing democratic potential, but at a certain point, if people lack interest and they don't want to participate, there's not much that you can do about it. But I certainly think the avenues for participation are there. Um, and resolving the knowledge deficit through education and other means is something that should be an ongoing focus. Um, I suppose, you know, ultimately, we have to compare EU citizen participation to that which occurs in other countries as well. Because when you compare the sort of engagement of citizens to countries like, for example, the United States, 
it becomes apparent that you know it's really it's really not that bad in Europe in terms of voter turnout in terms of other kinds of deliberation. Um, if you were to compare the EU to some ideal system where there's vast amounts of public participation in a public sphere and so on, uh, then I think it it would look a bit underwhelming. <laughs> Uh, so, but overall, what we can see in the trends is that there is a Europeanization of national identity that's occurring. We do see a, a sort of fledgling public sphere that crosses borders, and we particularly see this during times of crisis and after times of crisis. Uh, so I think the potential is there. The EU is just, it's still a relatively young actor, and over time, I would expect citizens would, would begin to become more and more engaged and, and start to participate more. Yes, I think democratic processes are incredibly important in Europe. And so even when you see today the phenomenon of the rise of the far-right parties, one aspect of this to recognize is that it still is occurring as part of the democratic process. Um, the mainstream and the majority of European citizens may not like this, but at least we're seeing far-right people participate in you know, elections and to and sit in parliaments and so on. Uh, so it's better to have these these citizens engaged in democracy than sort of outside of of that realm. Um, but more generally, yes, the EU is about democracy. Um, one of the main criteria is to to have democratic countries as part of the EU and to maintain that. Um, so. It is central and crucial to the EU. Uh, I think you know the way it works is, of course, in a multi-level fashion, where uh, some aspects occur at the local level, some at the regional, national, and supranational. Um, so you know this happens in formal ways, like through voting and forming of political groupings. It happens through informal ways, through citizen petitions, um, dialogue, deliberation. Um, movement throughout the EU, I think, is an important part of democracy. So I think we we really need a broad kind of view of democracy within Europe. And overall, scholarly studies of this comparing the EU, again, to other kinds of federal systems actually show a pretty positive outcome for how democracy works within. Well, the EU, as you know, has a a whole um, sort of collection of policies that really encourage the flourishing of cultural exp expression and also aims to protect cultural diversity within Europe at multiple levels. And so you see this in, in things like um, promotion of music and film and sort of special scholarships and funding opportunities to ensure that languages are upheld and that we don't lose the diverse fabric of what what Europe is all about. Um, so I think that those policies are great and they're important and and it is wonderful to see this kind of forward-looking um, thinking on the part of Brussels institutions to to save you know minority cultures and languages before they sort of become overrun by more majority languages and cultures and so, this I don't find a problem with this policy. I think that you know there's there is of course a protectionist element economically because cultural products are also part of um, the the whole global trade system, and this makes a lot of sense to me if you think about the example of you know Hollywood films and Hollywood TV kind of overrunning 
other possible um, avenues of cultural expression in countries throughout the world. Europe has a policy of encouraging some protection of those um, other forms of, of culture. Uh, but yes, it does, it does have an impact on identity, and you would assume that protecting all kinds of, of different cultures and languages might adversely affect a Europeanization of identity. Uh, so I see, uh, you know, the the European side of identity as a layer over these um, core local, regional, and national identities. But in a sense, it's more than just that layer. It's also the kind of glue that binds this all these diverse identities together. Uh, because, as you know, national identities are often not even that strong. Um, in many countries like Spain and the UK, uh, local and regional identities are stronger than national identities. So this creates a kind of impetus uh, on the part of regions to think, well, maybe we shouldn't even be part of the nation state because we have such stronger regional identities. And here's where I think the value of a European notion of identity really kicks in because it provides this umbrella to keep Europeans together in, to some degree recognizing the diversity within it. So everybody knows that the nature of their own individual identity is different from any other person's identity. But if they can say that on some level they're European, that they, they see themselves as part of this kind of common zone where they can move freely and participate in different cultures and learn about diversity, um, that is a positive aspect that that kind of allows for such diversity. So in a way, it's, it is a bit um, counterintuitive, but I, I feel that the Europeanization of identity actually includes in its definition all of the, these different cultures at the local and regional levels. Yeah, yeah. If, I mean, I think if I had my choice, the EU would continue to integrate further. And in particular, I think the area where it could stand to really um, benefit in terms of influence in the world is the, the common security and defense policy. Um, I don't necessarily think this should mean more use of force. I think that has to be something taken with great caution. But diplomatically and in terms of global governance and in terms of humanitarian and peacekeeping types of operations, the EU could do much more if it integrated further in this area, perhaps making some of the policy areas um, subject to co-decision rather than unanimity or qualified majority uh, voting, because this is an area where actually many Europeans already agree. Um, looking at Eurobarometer polls, consistently over 70% of Europeans have said they would like to have a stronger common foreign and security policy. So this is kind of this last bastion of major policies in which the intergovernmental method is still kind of hanging on. And I just think that with the kinds of shared values and, and vision for peaceful interaction, that this is an area where I would love to see more integration. At the same time, you know, the other policy areas are progressing in, in a pretty consistent pace towards more integration. And I think subsidiarity is still important. I think that, you know, you don't want to just have everything pooled and shared. You want to maintain some of the distinctiveness. And so this process is going to be a little different for every member state and 
um, for every region, sort of deciding how much uh, should be subject to subsidiarity versus not. So, you know, ideally for me, the EU moves a little bit closer toward federalism over time while being careful along the way, engaging in democratic processes to determine the outlines of subsidiarity. On a more kind of like uh, social public level, I would say that, you know, a greater understanding of really what was accomplished with this European project from the beginning would would help a lot. Understanding that, you know, Brussels is not just this scapegoat, but that it is this um, sort of fundamental idea that peace is possible, that diplomacy is the right method, that people can actually get along very well and see each other as fellow citizens, even across borders. Um, so on that kind of social public level, having resolving the knowledge deficit, having more of a sense of, um, of openness and acceptance towards others within Europe and outside of Europe would be ideal <laughs> in the future. So some of what I've been thinking about lately is, is just the importance of the origins of the EU back with the European coal and steel community. Um, I've been doing some archival research, reading the letters between the so-called EU founding fathers and between these European leaders and the American leaders in the 1950s who were supporting the European project. And I think what has been lost a bit today is just the power of ideas, understanding that you can have groundbreaking ideas and pursue them and and be successful with them to some extent. There's, There has been, from the beginning, this power of ideas leading to the power of possibility that you can really recreate, you know, the, the system that you live in, the governance that you have, the identity that you hold. And to some extent, we're in, a, in an era, in a time in which, um, you know, skepticism and pessimism is somewhat more valued than optimism. And so I think it's really important to, to remember and to think back about these initial ideas that really launched the European project that provided so much momentum that it continues today, even while generations have changed and people have forgotten the experiences of World War II and the Cold War. And so I think history, revisiting that is incredibly important, not just to know what happened, but to understand how much human agency really matters in the creation of the future of Europe. been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.